Hello, everybody, and welcome to Mind Body Greens Beauty Podcast, Clean Beauty School. I am your host and Mind Body Greens Beauty Director, Alexandra Engler. On this podcast, we explore beauty through the lens of well being. And on today's episode, we are exploring how mental health can inform your hair health and how how you take care of your hair informs your mental health and all of the ways that these two things intersect. I am so, so excited for today's conversation. And to have this conversation, I am bringing on a woman who is a certified therapist. She is a hairstylist. She is a hair historian. This woman obviously knows what she's talking about. I cannot wait to learn more from her. So without further ado, Dr. Afia Ambulashaka, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm glad you said my, my name properly. It's a big name. So <laughs> thanks. Well, it's a beautiful name. And you are a woman who is very clearly well-versed in today's discussion. I, I, I want to know how you became all of these things that you, <laughs> that you are. Because <laughs> there's, there's a lot of titles to your name, right? Um, why don't we start with um, the mental health side? You know, how... Why did you decide you wanted to become a psychologist, a therapist? Okay. I didn't originally want to become a psychologist. Um, I actually wanted to be a dentist. And so I went to the University of Pennsylvania for undergrad and had this whole plan of having a becoming an orthodontist. Um, I had braces and had a really negative experience. And so I, I said as a teenager, I'm going to become an orthodontist so kids don't have to go through what I had to go through. However... My first semester in college, I hated all of my math and science classes. Yes, I hated them. I could not stand and I could not think about a career that focused so much on labs and things like that. And it was stressful. So I remember giving up my dreams of becoming a dentist. And in my first semester, when it was time to register for the second semester, I told my friends, register me for the full spring semester. I don't even care what you put me in. And so <laughs> I trusted them significantly and they enrolled me in an introdu introduction to psychology class, I think introduction to sociology, Spanish, and a course called Black Women in Literature. And so I remember taking the intro to psych class, which probably had about 500 students in it, but I was so entertained by the professor. Uh, his name was Dr. Chate. Shout out to him. He probably doesn't even know I exist. But I think I really think he made me want to become a psychologist because of how funny he was. He had like a wireless mic and would just be doing stand up comedy shows ultimately in this introduction to psychology class. And it made me pay attention. So really understanding how psychology related to everything in terms of how we think how we behave and how we feel. Every career path includes thinking, feeling, and behaving. And so I could see things through that lens and started taking more and more psychology classes and recognized that I really liked it and I was good at it. Um, also in my psychology classes, I noticed that there were certain disparities, that the only time that they would bring up people in my community and Black communities was oftentimes if there was a deficit, something wrong. And so that made me want to study psychology, even from a Black perspective, to be able to value and honor some of my own lived experiences and the experiences of others in my community. So that was a really long story to say that I didn't like dentistry, but love psychology. But yeah, that was my path. <laughs> I love that you just gave your friends full control. That's amazing. <laughs> Sometimes like, you do just got to let go of the wheel. 
I mean, it worked out for you. So, <laughs> um, but you're obviously passionate about the about hair care and the intersection of hair care and our mental health and the intersection of hair care and community. And I I am curious about when those wheels started turning. You know, when did you realize that you wanted to go down this path towards more of like the beauty route, the beauty end of of uh, psychology? Yeah, well, I think actually beauty became, was first. <laughs> beauty was for me, my story that I always love doing hair. I was my family's hairstylist. So at family cookouts, I would have a lawn chair set up outside and I basically would have a mini salon and do my cousin's hair and aunt's hair. Um, my biggest uh, hair model was my sister. Um, she has a pounds of hair. And so I'd experiment and create different hairstyles. And so that transition to college as well in my dorm room that I would invite friends over and I would do their hair or there would be a big football game. I braid the football players hair. It made me popular. It made me popular because I didn't charge people. I loved the creative aspect. To me, it was like art therapy. And so it just was something I enjoyed and found pleasure in. And I think I just have affinity towards really beautiful things and creating art with hair. And so that's kind of that origin story. But how they merge together, though, is that I was a psychology major in college. And I remember talking to my aunt on the phone one day and telling her I didn't know if I wanted to go on and study hair and beauty or if I wanted to become a psychologist. And she said, well, why can't you do both? I don't think she was directing me to do both at the same exact time, <laughs> but that's the way I interpreted it and thought, hmm, I can do hair and therapy together. And so that was sort of the, the origin story of merging my beauty passion with my mental health passion. I love that. And, you know, I, as somebody who does fundamentally believe that beauty is a means of connection and a means of exploring something deeper, I do think that there is just something innate about getting your hair done or getting a facial or getting your nails done, like something where you sit down and you're being taken care of that feels restorative and it like touches something deeper. I think it's so fascinating that you're able to identify that at clearly such an early age, you know, was that something that was like, you always felt like when you were younger and doing your family's hair or, you know, were you only able to make those connections later when you were starting to study it? I'm curious because I do think that those moments, you know, they, they inform our relationships with beauty later on in life. Do you, do you have any of those breakthrough moments that you can think of? Good question. I, it's, it's interesting because I remember trying to explain to professors in graduate school what I wanted to study, and they simply could not understand. <laughs> they actually called some of my research ideas of studying the psychology of hair cutesy. Yeah, right. That's a, I won't be offended by cutesy, but. <laughs> but it's just, it's, yeah, it's like kind of, it's just not taking it seriously and it should be taken seriously. Yes, yes. And so I always found that the community was much more open to my ideas than academia. And so I realized that I had to go to the hair salons, to the barber shops and have conversations in that space to be authentically engaged in community, to hear their discussions around community 
well, around beauty and to be able to translate some of those community conversations into the science that I was trying to understand. So I'm almost looking at your question from an academic lens to think about what I needed to do to to disagree with my advisors or <laughs> to be able to pursue something that I actually wanted to study that hadn't been studied. Because a big thing in psychology is you're, you're supposed to fill gaps, right? You're supposed to see that there is a link in a chain that's missing. And I felt like the beauty piece was a huge gap in the psychology literature, um, especially when it comes to communities of color as well in terms of embracing darker skin complexions, tightly coiled hair, different body types. And so I think maybe even having that conversation with the professor energized me. I think I don't like to be told that I can't do something. And so I think it energized me to pursue it more deeply, but again, in an intellectual way, because I don't know about you, I, I wanna make sure I use words properly. And the other day, just recently, I was looking up the word beauty because I'm like, well, what is it? I talk about it all the time. I want to make sure I'm using this term correctly. And it actually said it's something that pleases the intellect. And so I'm realizing that beauty is a feeling. It's a thought. It's a mindset. And so really transitioning and seeing beauty in that lens has been really helpful, even in the short term, to, to see, yes, this is a really big part of psychology that I'd like to talk more about and explore. I love that. And I think anybody who engages in beauty knows inherently how closely it is connected with our mental health. Ask anybody who's had a bad hair day and they will tell you that, you know, ask anybody who's dealt with a skin condition and they will tell you that. So I'm astounded that there was pushback, but I also, I also believe that there was pushback. <laughs> but, you know, I love what you said about the research in psychology is about filling the gaps. And one of the ways that you have been able to fill the gaps is with psycho therapy, this concept that you've created, this movement that you've created. I, I love it. I, I would love for you to explain to us what exactly it is and, you know, the mission behind it. So, so others can understand uh, what psychotherapy is. Yes. Thank you. And it is a word that I made up. <laughs> so combining psychotherapy with hair. So psychotherapy is using hair as an entry point into mental health services. So it includes at this point training hair care professionals and beauty professionals in mental health first aid. It also includes training therapists to enter into beauty spaces. So whether it's a hair salon or a nail salon to be able to have therapeutic conversations in there, whether it's individual one-on-one -on -one work or even group work, since a lot of beauty spaces are collectives. Um, it also includes training social media influencers and beauty influencers in mental health first aid as well, because to have their posts be in informed by research around mental health, since we know that their messages are much louder than any therapist's message could be, um, and just psychoeducation for people to really understand um, and have a good grasp of their own emotional world, but even thinking about how it connects their sense of self and beauty. Yeah. I would love to hear some examples of what you mean by hair is an entry point into mental health care, because I know it to be true, but I, I would love to hear about how this has worked in practice. Yes. Yeah, so it's interesting because I think people are much more open to talking about their hair or their nails or their skin concerns than they are 
about their mental health. But what happens when people start talking about their hair, why they like it or dislike it, it actually gets into some of their internal conflicts. It gets into maybe some, what I term aesthetic trauma. So aesthetic trauma is having a deeply or distressing experience related to beauty. And for people to be able to process that actually requires some therapeutic support. Uh, so that, that would be an example that um, because I've worked at hair salons and because I've worked at in therapy offices, I know that it's sometimes the same conversation that's happening in terms of people talking about who they are and some of their goals and um, some of the challenges that they've experienced in life. And as you know, I'm sure that our hair can be a litmus test for what's going on inside of our bodies, but even our thought processes and patterns, right? Feeling very distressed or depressed, it shows up in our hair, whether through hair loss, but even through maybe matted hair or split ends and things like that when we're not taking care of our hair, moisturizing our hair. And so it really shows what's going on inside internally. So having a conversation about hair can allow us to get to deeper levels of our consciousness. Yeah. I mean, when I talk about this, uh, an example that I bring up a lot is, you know, one of the first first signs of like a major depressive episode that they tell you to look for is lack of hygiene. You know, you stop taking care of yourself in that way or you stop showering. And I think that's pretty telling. It's like one of the first habits that is left to the wayside when you don't feel good. And, you know, when you are going through an episode like that. So like clearly there is a connection that we make deep inside where we say, I don't feel good. I don't deserve to do this XYZ thing, or I can't even bring myself to think about that because of the way that I feel. And I have always found that to be just such a telling, telling example of just how deeply these things are connected. I'm sure you see that a lot. You know, people, they don't take care of their hair as much when they're going through something. Yeah. It, it's really fascinating, right? Absolutely. And, and I'm glad that you're well versed in the symptoms of depression, right? In terms of depression even being considered the common cold of mental illness, meaning that at some point in everyone's life, they're going to experience some of those symptoms of depression. And sometimes an early sign is that neglect of your aesthetic or your appearance. If you're someone who always has their eyebrows done or wears lots of jewelry or has their nails done, and then you see this person and <laughs> their nails are chipped. But their, their hair is in a messy bun for weeks at a time. <laughs> and um, just, you know, the unibrows come back. Not to say anything's wrong with the unibrow. I have a unibrow. But to think about that, that something is going on, that other things are taking their time or attention. Um, oftentimes when someone's experiencing a depressive episode, that there could be extreme fatigue, just exhaustion. It's so difficult to drag yourself out of bed and even lo losing the motivation to wash your face or things like, like that. Um, I'm also mindful of the field um, of psychodermatology, where even certain stress can impact our skin or our hair growth and things like that, um, where the, the hormonal imbalances and um, all of that factor in to how our appearance can even change related to having anxiety or depressive episode. The well there is just so deep. And I... I love exploring that because I, I I think it allows people to, like you said, like grasp onto something that feels more tangible because sometimes like talking about your feelings just feels so overwhelming. Oh, yeah. 
<laughs> but you can talk about your hair in a much easier way. Anyway, that's all to say, I, I love this concept that you've created. And uh, another element that I think speaks to your practice and your work is the ways in which society influences this and the ways in which society can impact how we view ourselves. And specifically, um, people with textured hair, coily hair, Black women. And it's such an important part of this discussion because in order for society to move past this or have a better understanding of what's happening, we need to have these discussions. So, you know, what what have you learned through your research? Because I know you do a lot of research on this topic. You know, what what are some of the more surprising findings that, you know, you've come across in your research on this on this area? Thanks for getting into the data. Um, so I actually collected about maybe 500 different samples through the Hair Health and Heritage Survey. So um, myself and my research students collected data from hair salons and barbershops in the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area. And one of the things that I think surprised me the most in the findings were related to self-care practices, beauty, identity. I have an article published in a journal of exercise and nutrition um, I think it's called Don't Sweat Your Hair Out. If I think that's the title. I try to make the titles fun because it's science and, you know, PubMed. I wanted, to, I wanted to catch people's attention. And in this particular article, we were summarizing the data around eating fruits and vegetables, drinking water, um, sleeping, and exercising at least 30 minutes, four days a week. And so I thought that there would be some relationship between how people wear their hair and their health behaviors. I thought that if people wore their hair naturally and didn't use chemicals, that they would be the healthier people, right? That, that they would drink more water and they'd exercise more because they're not using ke harsh chemicals in their hair. I was wrong. I was wrong. The data actually showed that it was more so related to someone's weight. Weight was more of a factor than how they styled their hair in terms of their exercise and eating behaviors and things like that. So even if someone used tons of chemicals in their hair or harsh products, it still was more weight related than hairstyle related. So that was a surprising piece of data <laughs> for me. Yeah, super fascinating. Natural. And it's like, no, just if you want to regulate your weight, then you focus on those things. But I found a lot of data about mother-daughter relationships being super influential into self-concept, beauty and hair care. So I, I think about my own mother <laughs> and how she influenced and helped me to internalize really positive things about my hair and um, the rituals that she would engage with me, but that was something that was generalized to a lot of the participants in the study. Wait, fo follow up with that, because I do think the lessons that we learn about beauty from our parents, you know, with women, I, I think the relationship with the mother is quite notable, obviously. And I love exploring that dynamic because I think I think most mothers want to give their daughters the best outcome that they can to feel to feel good. But we're not always given the tools to understand what that even looks like, right? I'll just use like weight as an example. Like maybe a mom had a challenging relationship with her weight growing up. And so 
she passes that along to her kid through eating habits. Like, I feel like we see this a lot on TikTok with like almond mom sort of conversations. It's hard because it wasn't necessarily intentional, but it happened. And I'm curious, how have you found that parents can be more conscious of how they leave those negative beliefs behind and kind of stop that cycle and are able to give better outcomes or better insights to their kids? Great question. I'm very much mindful of parents needing to do their own work first, right? (laughs) To socialize their children from this perspective of empowerment. So in in, um, the data, it was really showing that if a parent embraced their natural beauty and um, hair care practices, that that was then transferred to their children versus parents who were very negative around black aesthetics or, you know, darker skin or tightly coiled hair, then that was also transferred or those thoughts and practices were transferred. So I have a recent article that's published in the Journal of Black Psychology that's focused on Black women's earliest memories of getting chemical hair relaxers. And so some people report as young as three or four years old having this process that is quite damaging to the hair and to the scalp, but they didn't choose, right? At three or four years old, you do not make any decisions, (laughs) especially around um, how your hair is going to be treated versus people who didn't ever have their hair chemically relaxed. They told stories of, you know, their, their parents teaching them how to properly hydrate their curls or would take them to a professional to get braids and things like that. So I did see that emerge in terms of um, the long-term outcomes, because even for the participants I had, some of them were in their 70s, still talking about something that happened at three or four years old that their parents criticized their hair or said something was wrong with them and um, made them engage in this monthly practice that now we see is connected to fibroid tumors, uterine cancer, and things like that. So to even think about that, um, you know, putting this all in this context of even um, maybe Western ideals of beauty and how each person or each family had to navigate sort of like long straight hair or lighter skin and the rules around embracing um, their natural beauty. These conversations are so important, but so hard because, you know, these are these are tough things to grapple with. And um, it does, to your point, it does mean that, you know, people have to come to terms with the pain that they've felt. And that's not easy. I applaud anybody who is, who is able to put in the work because putting in the work is really, really hard. And it's a really admirable thing that you do when you go through and, you know, you are able to process these hard feelings. And yeah, no, I, I think that mother-daughter connection is really, really fascinating. I also wanted to ask you about the salon setting um, and creating an environment where people do feel safe. And because I know that's a big part of your work. And what does that even look like? Like, how can somebody, how, because I I think uh, quite a few professionals listen to this podcast. So how can a beauty professional be able to create an environment where, you know, the person in their chair or, you know, on, on their bed getting a facial does feel safe? That is a beautiful question. It makes me think about a new concept that I've been working with called trauma-informed hair care or trauma-informed beauty practices. It's the recognition that 
your client may have had a previous negative experience in the salon um, space engaging in a beauty practice. So in trauma-informed care in general, it's this concept that you do not want to re-traumatize the person by something you say or maybe a certain touch um, that you're engaged in. In a salon that I worked at, at for years in Silver Spring, Maryland called a natural hair studio, every single time the owner of the salon would come in or help other stylists and you know, caring for their clients, if they were, it was you know very busy, she would always do this thing. She would always say, can I touch your hair? And I, and I was so struck by that. I'm like, why is she asking? It's a hair salon. It's implied. It is implied that you are going to have your hair touched in here. But she wanted consent. She wanted consent. And so I thought that that was such a great practice that I've actually been instructing other beauty professionals to ask even before you touch someone, um, which sounds like, odd again, if you know you're getting a facial, your face is going to get rubbed. But <laughs> to, to be aware that touch is about to happen, to, to verbalize what you're doing each step, to explain. Sometimes it's like, oh, I'm rushing and I don't need to explain everything. But that actually helps someone to feel like they have choices to say no or give me a second or um, not to be so rushed in their beauty practice. Another thing that I think is important in terms of this trauma-informed care that can happen in these beauty spaces is to give people choice overall. I think the consultation element of any beauty practice is so critical because sometimes clients can come in and maybe they had a certain appearance or goal in mind. And maybe the beauty practitioner had a particular aesthetic or goal in mind. And when that, that when there is a mismatch, when there's a mismatch that um, there could be distress on both ends. And so I think that it's important for beauty professionals to engage in a certain amount of emotional labor that includes making sure your client is pleased, but doing that early on and consistently. So um, whether it's an image that the two of you are looking at and being realistic, because even as a hairstylist, sometimes people bring in images and I'm like, that's a wig. <laughs> Your hair will not be able to do that. Or, or, you know, with a certain aesthetic, I'm like, that is a filter. No one actually looks that way. But to, to be able to create, create a shared understanding. Um, and empower a client to make a decision about um, maybe some of the compromises that even will have to be made. Again, the choice piece is really standing up, having the conversation, not feeling rushed and checking in, even having a mirror during the process. I know a lot of stylists do not want a mirror involved because the person could be critiquing or hyper observing each um, technique. But if you choose to, to say, am I getting this right? Are you happy? Um, so things like that are important to the process. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. And like having multiple checkpoints where somebody feels comfortable to speak up and that makes a lot of sense. I also, you know, follow up to this conversation. I do want to ask, you know, how might a hair care professional also be able to take care of themselves? Like you, you're somebody who does this all the time and I can't imagine it's easy. I, because you do have to put in the emotional labor and you do have to, you know, give so much of yourself to people and even touching people requires a lot of energy. Like the hands are very powerful. And how do you take care of yourself and how do you tell beauty professionals to take care of themselves? Cause that's, you know, important too. 
Yes. I'm so glad you're asking this because I think some of the same things that I do to take care of myself as a beauty professional are the same things that I do to take care of myself as a psychologist. <laughs> and also that I've had extreme burnout. I'll just put it out there. I have been exhausted. I have never been so popular um, in terms of being a mental health professional than over the past few years and being so, as I say, booked and busy. So one of the things that I've really had to lean into so strategically is my morning routine. It's gotten to a point where my husband has done an intervention on me. He was like, three hours is too long to have a morning routine. Like I'm just doing so many things in the morning to prepare myself for the day. So a few months ago, I had read the book, uh, The 5 a.m. Club, that talks about I'm not a part of the 5 a.m. Club yet. Um, but it talks about the ideal morning in terms of taking time in the beginning of your day to exercise, taking time in the beginning of your day to do something reflective like journaling or meditation, and to take time in the beginning part of your day to learn something new. So to be able to feed your mind in a certain way. So I've been trying to integrate those elements of exercise, of meditation. I've been taking like tons of meditation courses like Transcendental Meditation and the Wim Hof Method. Oh, wow. Wim Hof. That's, that's intense. <laughs> I've taken ice baths. Like I've really um, been into regulating my nervous system. And then I'm really into journaling and reading and podcasts. And so integrating that as part of my self-care routine. Um, but also I'm so mindful of what I consume. So I think a lot of us are chronically dehydrated and don't recognize that that can have consequences on our mental health. And then also um, thinking about food. So I've been working with a nutritionist. Who she has really had me limit my sugar. And I'm talking about at this point, I'm just getting some berries and apples in. in terms of even being mindful of how my body personally responds to um, highly processed foods and sugar and all of that. But I find, oddly enough, that I've been a better therapist and more creative when I'm engaging in that morning routine. And I don't pull any all-nighters. I just cannot do that anymore. And so I will even have people explore again, water, nutrition, meditation, journaling, reading, exercise as being critical to be able to even engage in this work as beauty professionals. Yeah. No, I mean, setting up those parameters that you know how to nurture yourself is so important because you do, you give so much of yourself. I'm always so astounded how much beauty professionals and mental health professionals give of themselves because it's a lot. And I don't know how you do it, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, I'm still figuring it out. And I guess that's even the thing. I've been talking about my college years with you today. But I've been in the mental health field for almost 20 years now because I started graduate school in 2004. And your very first semester, you start seeing clients. So <laughs> I was super young and out there hearing really disturbing things, but didn't necessarily have the tools back then. And I've had to discover and explore strategies and techniques for self-care. Like I've had to research self-care to get to this point and take courses on self-care <laughs> to be able to cope with things. There, There's a saying that everyone should meditate for 20 minutes a day, but if you're too busy, you should meditate for an hour. 
just that concept that the more stress and busyness you're involved in, the more than self-care you'll have to engage in. Yeah, no, that's, I love that quote. (laughs) Okay, I want to shift a little bit and talk about the beauty industry as a whole. Your practice is so, so hands-on and you are engaging with people on a real level. But, you know, you also, you work with beauty brands, you're engaged in the beauty industry, you're probably a consumer of beauty products, which we'll get to later because I want some product recs. But, you know, I want to get a little like temp check on the state of the beauty industry and specifically the hair care industry and where it stands on meeting the needs of black hair and what needs to be addressed still, etc. Let's start with what's still missing. Like what, what are the gaps that you see in the industry that you still would like to see the industry do better? Mm, thank you for that. Yeah. One, one of the things that I see even in the gaps in the beauty industry is still representation and ads and um, not only in the advertisements, but even in who is making the decision about those ads. So I think that representation of Black executives, of Black beauty professionals doing the behind the scenes work of preparing the hair and makeup for the the talent um, at all different levels. I've actually been doing quite a lot of consultant work as a psychologist with beauty brands around what I think is missing, but I tend to focus on the hiring process in terms of who is actually skilled and proficient. It's really interesting because in 49 of the 50 states, You do not need to know how to do textured hair to be a licensed cosmetologist. So Louisiana is the only state right now that requires you to understand curls and coils in this profession. So I think that's a big gap too, but there's not enough training. So I think that that's a big piece in the industry where there are experts, expert cosmetologists and master stylists who've had to learn on their own a lot especially in New York. I have to get a shout shout out to New York. I'm from New York and I feel like that's one of the natural hair capitals of the world in terms of people who have been steadily um, training other folks in the techniques of how to not damage curls and coils, how to properly moisturize scalps, how to properly lock care and things like that. So I think to amplify some of the voices of people in the industry who've been doing it for a super long time. So things like that, just in terms of changing some of the requirements in the education so that it can show up differently in, in um, talent and showing up differently just in, again, hiring and things like that. Yeah. No, I mean, the the education factor is so, so important. And it's, I mean, that fact is astounding that, you know, it's not required in 49 states. I mean, that is wild. On the flip side, what excites you about looking towards the future? Like, is there anything that gives you, you know, hope that we are, things are looking up? Yes. Um, (laughs) Positively, yes. I think one of the, the great hopes that I have for at least my future in the beauty industry is getting this Maui Moisture um, sponsorship. So a few months ago, Maui Moisture reached out to me and decided to give me a donation of $100,000. 
Um, <laughs> to be able to train stylists and barbers in some of my mental health first aid techniques. I didn't know that was even possible. That's amazing. That's so exciting. Yes. I didn't even know that brands would want to support someone like me who's doing mental health work. And so I think that that's a great indication that the brands are looking for what is actually happening sort of on um, in the community level to be able to amplify. So I'm sure that's the reason we're even having this podcast. And so I'm so happy that they were able to connect me to you and to um, these larger spaces. I'm so used to being in a therapy office or in a salon space, but to have larger platforms, to have these conversations around race and culture and mental health and beauty. Um, so I'm, I'm very excited about the future because I think that it will become part of the curriculum in these rules uh, to talk about things around culture and texture and things like that. I do want to take a pause and say that like you are clearly somebody who is so like gifted and charismatic and like it makes sense why someone would have part with you partner with you. Like you should have a wider platform. Like what you're talking about is really important. And I think it like it's not only important for on the ground work, like, you know, the professionals who are doing the work day in and day out, but it's important for just a broader awareness in general. Like people should understand these concepts about how closely beauty is connected with mental health. Like these are, the work that you're doing is really important and it's really cool. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for those words of affirmation. I think sometimes I work in a little bit of a silo and I'm like, are people getting this or understanding? But just your, your summary and feedback just now is a strong indication. Okay, th this is making sense for other people. So I'm glad that that you were able to articulate it in that way to me right now. So thank you. I feel very passionately about you know this topic, and so, clearly so do you. Um, you've made it your life mission. Um, and anyway, I just yeah, I'm just I'm very impressed by your work. I think I think what you're doing is really amazing. Um, so to close out the conversation, I always chat with how people take care of themselves. You know, we got a little bit of it earlier when we were talking about, you know, your self-care routine, et cetera. But um, I want to get into some of your beauty recommendations as well. So let's let's start with hair care. That's an easy place to start. What what do you use? What are you doing? Okay. It's funny because I'm so inconsistent in my routine. Um, I think I let my feelings guide me in terms of how I want my hair to look, whether it's slicked down or big and puffy. So if I'm trying to achieve um, a slick down look, I obviously am drenching my hair in water, but using leave-in conditioners. So Maui Moisture has some really great leave-in sprays that I've been using lately. I have lots of samples from them. And so I tend to lean into those products and they smell really good. And they have aloe. So I am someone, and I get pushback from a lot of cosmetologists on this, but this is my personal philosophy. I am someone who um, believes that food should be in hair products. <laughs> Me too. You, you're not going to get pushed back here. <laughs> like, no, it could leave things in the scalp. But so even having products that have aloe or turmeric or coconut oil or things like that, I think that the body can best 
process it um, and would have the, le- the least amount of chemical trail as a result of my hairstyling. So I'm really into the shea butter leave-in conditioner of Maui Moisture right now. So as soon as I get out of the shower after washing my hair, I drench my hair then in a leave-in conditioner. And then I will use usually a styling gel. They're, they also have the shea butter elongating curl styling gel that I've been using a lot too. So I probably washed my hair (laughs) a week ago and each day it gets bigger and bigger. So I don't tend to do anything more than um, not wear a shower cap in the shower and just let the water sort of (laughs) re-moisturize my curls in that way. But that's, that's my morning or my hair go-to ritual right now. All right. And what do you, what do you do for skincare? Skincare. I am probably too simple when it comes to skincare. Right now, I am using a like this brown from like an African marketplace that has, I think, charcoal in it. It doesn't even have like a label. Is it like a soap? Yeah, it's an, a soap, but it literally was wrapped in saran wrap. <laughs> it gave me a chunk of it. So it's like a black brown soap um, that's bar soap. And I've been using castor oil lately. That's been like my go-to. I love castor oil. Yeah. Um, so have a, a bottle of castor oil. And at night, especially, like I've been putting it on my face and going to sleep and just letting it absorb into my pores <laughs> and waking up. And I think I look pretty good. You have great skin. Thank you. I turned 40 this year. And so trying to really embrace. Well, happy birthday. You look amazing. Thank you. And so I'm like, oh, I really need to probably have a better skincare routine. But right now it's like this black brown soap that has charcoal in it and using um, castor oil. So not even specific names, but those products. I mean, listen, if it's working, you don't have to switch it up, you know? <laughs> Thank you, because I'm a, I, I watch in, online and people have a 12-step skincare routine. I'm like, oh, I'm not there yet. That's too much. <laughs> the skin doesn't need all that. <laughs> okay, so I know that we went through some of your well-being routine earlier as we were talking about, you know, your self-care rituals. But, you know, I do always end this conversation with asking people how they take care of themselves as a whole, because as we know, it's all interconnected. So I guess I'll just, you know, leave us with what is the part of your well-being routine that you most look forward to? Like what, what gives you the most peace? I love really long, hot baths to the point where my husband is trying to do an intervention. He was like, you do not need to stay in the bathtub that long. You are going to be a prune. And I'm like, I love it. It just is so relaxing. I use like essential oils and and playing music and I'm just in the zone. It allows me to like release um, all the things that I'm experiencing and hearing throughout the day, right? As a therapist, I hear the worst things that have happened in people's lives. And doing this particular bath time (laughs) experience relaxes my muscles, lets my jaw unclench. And so I'm not giving it up. I love it. Well, you deserve it. So (laughs) Uh, you take as long as a bath as you want. (laughs) Thank you. Tell that to him. (laughs) 
Well, listen, thank you so much for joining me today. This was such an amazing conversation. I I loved everything you shared with us today. It's such important work. It's such important insights. And, you know, I know that I learned a lot and I am sure the audience learned a lot as well listening in. So thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. I, I had fun. Good. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. For more beauty content from the team at MindBuddyGreen, you can always read along with our content at mindbuddygreen.com, follow us on social media, and of course, tune into next week's episode. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to rate and review us. And if you ever want to reach out with questions or insights or thoughts, you can find me on Instagram at Alex underscore Blair underscore. Thanks so much for your time.